Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilley with you today, joined by Katrina Blowers. And Katrina, you've got a briefing about the way our pharmaceuticals in our wastewater are changing the behaviour of fish. Yeah, so get this. Some fish are becoming even more aggressive and have a lower sex drive from exposure to traces like things like antidepressants and even ibuprofen. It's actually changing their behaviour and making the fish species bolder, so less able to respond to risks and essentially develop more risky behaviour. Wow, that sounds really bizarre. I mean, I wonder which comes first, the the aggression or the lower sex drive or whether there's some kind of um, relationship there. Anyway, we'll find out all about it, what's going on in our wastewater and what it's doing to fish behaviour. That is our briefing. First, here are today's headlines. It is Friday, the 10th of November. Well, following the Optus outage on Wednesday, the telco is now offering customers a free data top-up to compensate. Customers will get either 200 gigabytes of bonus data or for prepaid customers, unlimited data on weekends until the end of the year. And that's estimated to be worth up to $70. But Optus isn't out of the woods yet. The industry watchdog has said they're prepared to force Optus into large compensation payments if it refuses to set all customers' claims. The Ombudsman has said they could force payments of up to $100,000 for a business that could prove a loss and up to $1,500 for individuals. And Tom, I'm an Optus customer. I'm prepaid and I just, I don't know, I, I don't even use the data that I do have. So giving me more data, it doesn't really compensate me for, I mean, thankfully, I didn't directly lose money from it because I don't run a small business, but it is annoying. And I missed a lot of calls, including from family who were trying to get in touch with me. Yeah, no, a bit of free data is not going to come close for most people, especially, as you say, people running businesses. That's why it's going to be really interesting to see if they have to pay out big sums of compensation. The other thing they're going to have to be up against is the CEO will have to face a Senate inquiry now. And look, judging by her media performances, which were not impressive, and also judging by what's happened to business leaders in Senate inquiries lately, think... Alan Joyce, Richard Goida from Qantas, uh, that could get ugly. And the White House says Israel has agreed to a daily four-hour humanitarian pause um, amidst its assault on Hamas in northern Gaza. So the UN Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said the first pause will be today and Israel will give civilians three hours notice before the pause. He also noted that the pause is not to be confused with a ceasefire. A ceasefire not only gives them time to plan and execute, but it, it legitimizes what they started on October 7th. And that's unacceptable to President Biden. It's certainly unacceptable, understandably so, to the Israeli people. A pause is, as I said, temporary, localized, specific purpose. Yeah, so these pauses emerged out of discussions between uh, Israeli and US officials in the last few days, including a conversation between Biden and the Israeli PM Benjamin Netanyahu. Israel is also opening a second evacuation route along the coast. It's something the US has been pushing for, as you mentioned. Uh, 
Interestingly, Emmanuel Macron, the French leader, spoke saying we shouldn't be expecting peace in the Middle East to always be postponed. Uh, he's advocating for a two-state solution, humanitarian aid coming via the sea as well as floating hospitals. If you haven't checked out Tom's interview the other day with a former diplomat, they're talking about how this conflict could possibly end. And this diplomat used to be a big proponent of the two-state solution, but no longer thinks it will work. It is a fascinating interview, Tom. I got so much clarity and insight from that one. Yeah, I learned a lot from Bob Bowker as well, but I got to say, it didn't leave me with a lot of hope by the end of it. New data shows Australian households have suffered the largest fall in real income of any advanced economy over the past year. So this is analysis from the Australian Financial Review of the OECD data, which is an international group of developed countries, and it shows our real household incomes are down 5.1% over 12 months. And that's the biggest of all the 38 member countries of the OECD, while in the rest of that group, it is up. 2.6%. This is thanks to a combination of high inflation, a rapid increase in mortgage repayments and rising income taxes. So a real triple whammy there. Um, And those income taxes have risen via bracket creep. This is something we already had a very real sense of already, but now you see the data compiled on this graph in this article in the Australian Financial Review. And To see our income going backwards and to see Australia at the top of the list of of countries where the income's gone backwards, it's a real, I don't know, I guess not a wake-up call, but just an indictment of of where we're going and how, how tough the cost of living crisis is here in Australia compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, and they're saying that if people can hang on, um, I mean, next year they're, they're saying some interest rates might start to come down, but also uh, stage three tax cuts coming into effect in July of next year. And that package is going to abolish. So right now there's a 32.5% and a 37% bracket for incomes for people earning between $45,000 and $200,000. And that's going to go next year with just a single 30% tax rate. So that could help things too. And Taylor Swift fans are chasing tickets. If you missed out, there's a bit of good news. They're releasing a few more. So there'll be a release for the Sydney dates going live at 10am and 4 o'clock for some Melbourne shows, but they are partially obstructed tickets. So (laughs) I wonder if if that'll partially obstruct people's excitement, Katrina, or they'll still be frothing at the mouth. I think if you've missed out, you've spent hours upon hours, days upon days, refreshing a screen and hoping for the best only to miss out. Just the atmosphere of being there might be enough. I was looking at the maps of what these partially obstructed seats could mean. They're not terrible. Um, and I know that other people who've gone to concerts and, you know, had to sit right up the back or, you know, right at that angle where they even miss seeing some of the stage, they say that it's still worth it just to be there. So um, a, a bit of a note though, because they'll apparently, according to um, sellers, there, there's going to be a few people out there trying to scam people. So if you're keen to not get scammed, um, only go through the resellers um, through 
through Ticket Tech's official resale platform, which is called T Marketplace. Don't go through any of the others. Um, Frontier Touring hasn't authorised any of the others except for that T Marketplace. All right, Tom, I'll let you go and enjoy your weekend now. We are going to learn all about how the medication we might be flushing into our wastewater is starting to make fish act weird. A listener production. Aggressive fish who've lost their sex drive. Okay, it sounds a bit like a weird science fiction plot, but researchers say they've been testing pharmaceuticals in wastewater and they found a link between traces of antidepressants, even over-the-counter medicines like Nurofen, and changed fish behaviour. On the extreme end, cocaine sharks have been observed off Florida. Yep, marine biologists have observed some peculiar behaviour from sharks eating bales of cocaine dumped off the Florida Keys. Ian Wright is an associate professor in environmental science at the Western Sydney University who's right across all this research and he joins us on the briefing now. What is the situation with pharmaceuticals in wastewater? What do we know about the prevalence and whereabouts this kind of pharmaceutical waste is proliferating? It's an enormous issue and to be honest, we don't have an incredible amount of knowledge and that is a concern. So humanity, broad society, is using and excreting all kinds of pharmaceutical substances and in the wastewater, when that's discharged, which is usually you know, to rivers, to streams, to the ocean, to estuaries, these trace chemicals from our pharmaceuticals are having all kinds of impacts. And really the biggest issue is the lack of information. And without that information, how do we manage or reduce or address those impacts? Are we talking about it getting into the wastewater system through humans going to the toilet and flushing it out of their bodies and, and into the, the system that way? Or are there other ways that it's getting in? Yeah, that's the big way. I mean, there's not that many people on the planet that aren't using some kind of medication in a regular basis, myself included. Uh, I've got a version of arthritis and I take drugs daily. So how much of that actually goes through my body and into wastes, which is treated by the you know water utility and then discharged into the whatever the receiving system is? It's not the only way. It's also kitchen wastes, wastes from factories, even down to unused medications. One of the ways to get rid of them is actually to flush them down the sink or the toilet. So there's all kinds of ways that these pharmaceuticals can enter you know, local streams and rivers. You said it was really hard to get a grasp of just how big this problem is, but there have been some studies and they found some pretty alarming results. Can you tell us about a couple of them? Yeah, absolutely. So most recently, just adding to this list of knowledge is a study that's looked at anti-anxiety medication, benzodiazepines, and that's used quite quite a big slice of society 
and a lot of the active chemical constituents within that, it can actually enter you know, human waste through excretion, go into sewerage, and when the sewerage is treated, it might take out all kinds of you know, harmful disease-causing organisms and nutrients, but it doesn't necessarily remove those harmful chemicals like the benzodiazepines. And that has been linked by researchers in Sweden to actually change the behavior of fish in streams that receive sewage. And the strange thing with this is it's an anti-anxiety mechanism. It's actually changing their behavior and making the fish species bolder, so less able to respond to risks and essentially develop more risky behavior, which is having adverse consequences on the fish themselves. That's so strange because that's not the effect that it has on humans. Yeah, absolutely. But it is, in some ways, it's changing. It's a, you know, a response to stress in the environment for both humans and in a, in a strange and different way to these fish swimming in rivers and estuaries. Basically, it's affecting behaviour. Could there be a flow-in effect in terms of the wider ecology there that could then impact the predatory behaviour of those fish and what they then choose to eat? Absolutely. And this is where you know my, my background, the centre of my science, is looking particularly in freshwaters and looking at species of animals in freshwaters. And we just don't know that much. But we do know as a you know, broad society and in our science that wastewater has adverse impacts if poorly treated and in high concentration. It has adverse impacts not just on species but whole communities. And I think this example of the anti-anxiety medication from human wastes into the natural environment just adds another list to the many, many impacts that waste and human activity can have on natural environment. You were telling me about another study involving oysters, which I know are very sensitive to their environment too. Yeah, it was a study done by a colleague of mine from University of London, now fortunately in Australia. But it was done looking at phenolic compounds. Phenols are you know, one of a myriad of pollutants that are in waste and at a tiny, tiny concentration, 10% of the permitted level in United Kingdom at the time, she was, as part of her PhD research, she was amazed that it changed the gender of oysters. It, so they started to develop different sexual characteristics compared to a control population. And if you change their ability to breed and reproduce, it's not a toxic impact, but it's going to change over a period of time the natural structure of those species able to tolerate contaminated waters. 
Wow. One of the ways um, drug smugglers um, can pass drugs between borders is by dumping big packets of it into the ocean. And, you know, we've all heard of or seen, wasted an hour or so of our lives seeing that terrible movie, Cocaine Bear. But I was reading some research that was done off the Florida Keys that found that when sharks ingested cocaine bales, they were also exhibiting some very peculiar behaviour. And I don't like the sound of sharks having even more erratic behaviour. It's tough enough as it is with humans and sharks. But a study that um, some of my colleagues and former research students have done is looking at the rivers of Western Sydney, particularly looking at the impact of treated sewage. And even in the waste, illicit drugs are turning up. And so, you know, I'm talking about, you know, things like cocaine and pseudoephedrine and other illicit drugs. And in fact, we don't know what impacts that is having on the natural species living in the waterways, but that is now what uh, police authorities use across Australia and the world to monitor drug use in the population. And it's through either dump down the sink um, or flush down the toilet or like those bales of drugs that have somehow been smuggled and lost. But again, it's not just the prescription pharmaceuticals, but it's also illicit drugs and potential impacts. All right. So we know that this is a big problem. We know it makes fish and other creatures in, in the ocean exhibit some weird and potentially um, oh, very detrimental behaviour for, for the wider ecology. What can be done about this? I'm presuming it, it's quite expensive to screen wastewater for illicit drugs and pharmaceuticals, or perhaps we don't have the technology to remove all of those things once we treat it before we dump it out into the ocean. What, what can be done here? I think this is a really, really important issue. And that's, that's really one of the biggest take-home messages from me from this sort of discussion. What do we do? do about this. Now, firstly, there's all kinds of things we can do about not putting that waste down to, you know, flushing down the toilet, for example. So we can sort of tighten up what goes down the system. But because so many people are using this and excreting it through their waste, can't really change that. And it's likely to get more so. But treating the sewage is, is the key. And that's a really big issue around the world, but particularly in you know, the world's driest inhabited continent, which is Australia. And that is this push to use water more than once. And I'm really talking about recycling. So what limits does this impose on our ability to recycle highly treated sewage effluent? And this is now very controversial. But you can. It's actually amazing the advances in engineering and waste treatment in particular. And you can. I mean, the best example of that is 20 years ago, we didn't desalinate ocean water. We do now. So that sort of technology, you know, membrane technology, it's expensive. It's costly. It uses lots of energy, but that can be done. And again, particularly because we want to reuse sewage effluent more than once, that's where this is particularly important. That was Ian Wright, who's an Associate Professor in Environmental Science at the Western Sydney University. And I know 
Cocaine Bear got a lot of press when it was released. Cocaine Shark, the movie, actually came out in January of this year. It has got one star um, out of hundreds of thousands of votes. So I don't know that I'm going to be investing my time in watching that movie anytime soon. Now let's find out who we've got on for our weekend briefing. Jamila, who have you got? I've had such an interesting chat this weekend. I've been chatting with Jane Liu, who is the brains behind Shopo, which is a global fashion force. Seriously, particularly for the women out there, if you have not bought and worn a piece of Shopo clothing, I would be surprised. They bring in almost $100 million in annual revenue. They ship to 120 countries. They are everywhere. Their founder, Jane Liu, is an absolutely fascinating person who started the business in her parents' garage with a handful of clothes and a Facebook page when she was totally broke. She's now a judge on Shark Tank and uh, someone who a whole lot of people go to for leadership and business advice. So I've picked her brains in a, in a big way, as well as talking about some of the big questions in, in fashion at the moment, you know, about the impact on the environment of fast fashion and what it means to be stocking a genuinely diverse range of sizes. It's a really good chat. You'll enjoy it. All right. That is all from us this week. Thank you so much for joining us and listening to The Briefing every day. Uh, I hope you all have an excellent weekend. Huge thanks to to all of the people behind the scenes who you don't hear who work incredibly hard to make this show as great as it is. We look forward to catching you all again on Monday. Listener.